This is The Guardian. Today, how the death of a teenage girl might force some of the world's largest social media platforms to change. A warning before we start. This episode includes references to suicide and self-harm. In case those topics are extra sensitive for you right now, this is a heads up. Molly was a mesmerizing child. She um, was the youngest of our three daughters and they're all gorgeous people, but I would say that as a father, but Molly seemed to, from the earliest of ages, have a capacity for caring. She, she loved to look after other people. This is Ian Russell, Molly Russell's dad. She also was inquisitive. She loved to find out about things. So she'd look at the world through wonderfully inquisitive eyes that sparkled, and she would um, be quiet quite a lot of the time, work out what she thought was going on around her, assimilate what she had seen and heard, and, um, and process it in a way I don't think I've ever known anyone else ever do, even though I only knew her for 14 years. In November 2017, while suffering from depression, Molly took her own life. Reeling and looking for answers, her father Ian sat at the family computer, going through Molly's email and her social media accounts. This digital world into which his daughter had been sinking over the past few months. And that was when he started seeing the posts that she'd been seeing. It looked like they'd almost been pencil-drawn posts. I can remember one that said, who would love a suicidal girl? Um, and it had a little cartoon drawing of a sad-looking girl next to it. It set Ian on a mission to find out what Molly had been seeing online, what had been pushed on her, and what role it might have played in her death. It led to a world-first inquest and a damning conclusion about why Molly died. One with huge consequences for the social media companies shaping the worlds we all live in. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, how the Molly Russell inquest put social media on trial. Ian, when did you begin to notice that there might be something troubling Molly? I think as a family, it dawned on us across maybe as much as the last year of Molly's life that she wasn't the Molly that we used to know. But then she was also a 14-year-old Molly. Uh, and like many people of that age and like her sisters before her, she was beginning that process of transitioning from our lovely, adorable little child who'd run down the corridor and throw her arms around you when you came home at night from work to being her own adult self. And that process necessarily means that you separate yourself in some ways from your parents. She seemed a little bit more withdrawn, maybe spending more time in her room, but she'd still come down for family meals every evening. She'd still participate. I can remember thinking when Molly came to me and said she wanted to give up 
horse riding, but that was unusual. But she didn't just say, I want to give up horse riding. She said, Dad, do you mind if I stop horse riding for a while? I think I've plateaued. I think I've sort of reached a limit and it would be really good to have a break and then go back to it. And maybe that would help me be able to progress again. So I thought that was a very wise thing for a 14-year-old to say. So I didn't really question it. So we didn't see anything wholly unusual. With hindsight, it's easy to look back and go, I wish we'd acted on the fact that Molly had given up horse riding. Or I, I, I wish we'd spent more time saying, Molly, why don't you come down from your bedroom? But at the time, it was absolutely very normal behaviour and very difficult, therefore, to do anything about. And how did you and your wife tackle that fraught question that faces so many parents of how much access to technology to give Molly? Molly was the youngest of three. Her sisters had been before her and we'd come up with ways to restrict, but not overly, access to technology. I think it's so difficult because some people say the answer to not letting children see the harms that can be found online is not allowing them to have a digital life. I think if you do that, you run the risk of alienating yourself as a parent from your child. You also run the risk of alienating your child from their friends. So it's really, really hard. But we often talked about being safe online. And like most parents, we switched on the, I think it's called a net nanny or whatever, the protection measures that you can have to protect a child as best possible from what could be found online. Ian, after Molly died, how did you first come to think that social media had played some role in what had happened? I can remember sitting around the kitchen table at about midday on the day Molly died as a family of four. And I can remember one of us saying, this is wrong. It was very hard to find words that could even begin to express what we were feeling. But it was wrong. We we acutely felt it was wrong. There didn't seem to be anything that had been a matter with Molly. And she was dead. And it didn't take us long to look into her social media accounts. And amongst the pop stars and celebrities that are followed by 14-year-olds, we very quickly and disturbingly found this online world that Molly had inhabited, full of bleak images, bleak messages that encouraged anxiety, depression, self-harm, and even suicide. When you say bleak images, what kinds of things were you saying that Molly had been saying? When we looked through Molly's timelines, two colours dominated. Firstly, there was the instantly shocking graphic self-harm content that so often would be bright red in colour because it showed fresh wounds and quite often a lot of blood. And that was obviously quite disturbing to see. But then the other colour was the black and white posts. I can remember one that had a cartoon drawing of a girl lying in bed, cuddling a teddy bear with what looked like gouged out eyes lying next to her. And that post just said, the world is so cruel and I don't want to see it anymore. Each of those posts in its own way may not have done much, but what they did do collectively when you saw them on Molly's timeline was start to fill you with that sense of hopelessness, of um, unworthiness. The fact that 
you were a burden in everyone's life. How it affected a 14-year-old, I can't quite even now begin to imagine. Having discovered those disturbing things in her social media history, can you tell me about your efforts to try to dig deeper, to understand this role that social media may have played? I think the first reaction we had to finding disturbing online content, firstly, was just one of shock. Some of our family friends took it upon themselves to report some of the content that we'd found. I thought that the companies would come back, the platforms would come back and say, thank you. Thank you for showing us this content. We'll be able to take it down now. But in fact, the response from the platforms was to say, this content does not breach our community guidelines. And so we're not going to do anything about it. We're going to leave it on the site. I couldn't believe that platforms even considered that leaving this content online in a place that 13-year-olds and upwards could find it was in any way safe. And Ian, as you sought to get access to Molly's accounts to find out exactly what she had been seeing in the months leading up to her death, can you tell me a little bit about the resistance that you faced from the tech platforms as you tried to do that? The journey to get access to Molly's data in order to understand as best we could what had happened to her and how she'd been affected was just long and tortuous. You weren't travelling down a path that had already been made. You were fighting your way through the undergrowth to get there. The journey began with a trip to the Apple store on Regent Street because I couldn't get anyone at Apple online to respond to my request. So in the end, I took Molly's phone into an Apple store and said, can I talk to someone? I've got a very sensitive matter to talk about. And the shop worker on the floor said, just talk to me, it's fine. I said, no, I really want to talk to someone, possibly even in a private room somewhere. And the shop worker said, um, no, it's fine, talk to me. And I said, well, okay then. I want to get into these phones. I want them unlocked because my daughter ended her life a few weeks ago. And I want to see what these phones will tell us about why. And Apple's process of engaging with the bereaved parent at that point was aloof and remote. And I ended up talking online and eventually by phone to an Apple support service that was based in Dublin, I think, in Ireland, in a very normal way, as if they were processing sort of customer complaint or something, until I got to the point where they said, we can't escalate this matter any further because they claimed they couldn't unlock her phone at that time. But because the police are taking the phones, I saw the importance of what might be found within them. So when the phones were returned, I wrote to the coroner saying, is there any way that we can persuade the police to do it? And within hours, he'd responded saying, I've directed the police to come get the phones again and to investigate them and to try and recover the data from them. So he, from the very earliest days of the inquest process, seemed particularly interested to find out what we could from those electronic devices. So he issued directions to five platforms, two of which became interested persons in the inquest, and that was Meta and Pinterest. Twitter sort of responded by saying, oh, we'll give you a password reset so you can take over Molly's account and download her data. WhatsApp said, oh, well, we haven't got any data because it's end-to-end encrypted, so we can't help you. And Snapchat said, oh, well, we're based in the States. If you want to come after us, you have to use US law to do it. Dan Milmo, you're The Guardian's global technology editor, and you covered the Molly Russell inquest, which, using the powers of the coroner's court, 
did eventually manage to get access to Molly's social media history. Tell me about what the inquest saw. We, we saw a lot of content that Molly had viewed in the final six months of her life. Uh, some of it, particularly the video montages that Molly had seen, one member of the court had to leave the room when they were being shown. You look at them and think, no, please don't watch this, put down your computer. You're almost willing Molly to just look away. The impact of that on people watching objectively from the sidelines is there's absolutely no way that a 14-year-old girl, let alone a 14-year-old girl suffering from depression, should be able to access this content. And do we have any sense of the scale of what Molly was seeing? For example, on her Instagram. They handed over the Instagram posts that Molly viewed, shared, liked in the final six months of her life. That was about 16,000 pieces of content, of which 2,100 were related to suicide, self-harm, anxiety, depression. Those were the posts that were handed over. And we saw a lot of them in court. So it obviously wasn't the full viewing history uh, of of Molly. Um, It's only the the final six months of her life. 2,100 pieces of content. And that was just on Instagram. How did she come across so much of this stuff? We know that algorithms, which are, uh, to give the simple explanation, that an algorithm curates your viewing experience on a social media platform. We know that they pushed to Molly 34 accounts that had depressive or sad-sounding titles, and that Pinterest sent her an email uh, with depression pins you might like. The, The systems themselves were geared towards pushing more content to Molly that we knew would not benefit her at all, but these unthinking and unseeing systems were just looking at what Molly was looking at and thinking, okay, let's uh, send some more ideas of that nature your way. The thing that is really disturbing here, I mean, there's so much that's disturbing about it, but it's this idea that we're talking about a 14-year-old girl going through the things that teenagers go through, and she's turning to social media for help, for comfort. And instead what she's finding there is her darkest thoughts reflected back at her that that she's only being flooded in this kind of material. Another very poignant moment in the inquest, and obviously very many of them, was um, Molly had a Twitter account and she did use it to contact or try to contact Salis Rose an influencer who's talked about her battles with depression and mental health issues. And Molly sent messages to her, trying to initiate a conversation about what she was going through. And no matter how well-meaning these influencers might be, they cannot provide the professional help that Molly so sorely needed. And this was something that the coroner picked up in his conclusions. He was horrified that Quite a lot of the content on Instagram seems to say, you're on your own, no one can help you. What's the point? You know, actively dissuading someone from seeking the professional help that they need. Dan, as this evidence was being rolled out at the inquest, it wasn't just the coroner, her family and journalists in the room. It was also officials from some of these companies. What did they say? about the material that Molly had been exposed to on their platforms? So Judd Hoffman, the the global head of community operations at Pinterest, uh, gave evidence. And I'm I'm sure he's seen the content before, but he looked quite shocked 
And he did apologise. He did say that he deeply regretted the graphic material that she saw. The head of health and wellbeing policy at Meta, Elizabeth Lagone, testified over two days. And Ian Russell's legal representative was scathing about her testimony. And indeed, Ian Russell found it to be very disappointing. I think Meta's defence, if you like, about leaving a lot of the content that Molly saw and saved and liked online was because it was admissive content. It was important for the person who'd posted that content in terms of a cry for help or their journey towards getting better. Now, even if you accept that in all those cases, that's one thing, but then to have an algorithm suggest that content to a 14-year-old in Molly's case as something that they might like to see, it's not just inappropriate, it's wholly dangerous. It seemed to me that their prime concern was a sort of corporate concern of protecting their company, absolving themselves from blame and claiming, as far as Meta was concerned, that there was very few of those posts that were harmful. The Russell family legal representative, Oliver Sanders KC, a barrister, at the end, he just raised his voice and said, why on earth were you doing this? Why on earth were you showing this type of content to a 14-year-old suffering from depression? You have absolutely no right it was an incredibly powerful moment, but born of, I think, frustration with the Meta executives' testimony. And were there any experts involved in this inquest who talked about what the impact might have been on a 14-year-old girl of this flood of material that related to self-harm, to depression? What impact did it all have on Molly? The inquest heard from a consultant child psychiatrist, Dr. Nabin Benagopal, who at times found it quite difficult to give evidence. He was really affected by what he saw when he was shown the content that Molly had seen. Indeed, he said he struggled to sleep well for several weeks. But he was very clear that there was no positive benefit to the material that Molly saw and that it was not safe. And Dan, the senior coroner, Andrew Walker, issued his fact-finding report and conclusions on this tragic case. What did he say about the role of social media in Molly Russell's death? Well, his his findings of fact at, at the end were scathing about social media, in particular focused on algorithms, how they sent images, video clips and text to Molly, sometimes about her requesting it. He pointed out that a lot of the content romanticised acts of self-harm. And also, I mean, something that I think really appalled him was that the content that sought to isolate and discourage discussion uh, to sort of almost prevent you from seeking the, the help that you need. But it was his conclusion that was the most powerful thing, even though, you know, delivered in, in quite objective, unemotional language, where he said that Molly died from an act of self-harm while suffering from depression and the negative effects of online content. And it's those last words that were the most powerful of all, I think, because it's directly saying that social media contributed to the death of a young girl. And Dan, those words, that conclusion, that she didn't just die while suffering from depression, but also because of negative effects of what she was seeing on social media, that's pretty unprecedented, isn't it? The NSPCC, a children's charity, described this as a global first, social media being found accountable for a young girl's death. Indeed, the NSPCC described it as a big tobacco moment. It means that 
social media companies, if they haven't been before, will now be scrutinised in a very close way, I think, because the very sad case of Molly Russell just underlined very clearly the danger of that content, the danger of those platforms not being managed properly. At the press conference afterwards with Ian Russell and various campaign groups, they, they were asked if if it is the case that there probably have been other examples like Molly's that have never been heard or never got to a, a coroner's court. It's absolutely certain that there are young people who have taken their lives as a consequence of the sort of pressures that we have heard about through through this this inquest and, and this is a watershed moment and it is this case might hopefully raise awareness that sometimes you know that social media can be a, a contributory factor to terrible cases like this and the more we know about it the more we can prevent these sort of cases happening again but we told this story in the hope that change would come about and i hope that the world will be safer the digital world particularly will be a safer place to inhabit and the final thing i want to say is thank you molly Coming up, social media companies say since Molly's death, they've changed for the better, but a new bill might force them to go much further. Dan, having watched this case play out, having sat through the evidence and heard the coroner's conclusions, do you have any trust that social media companies will take the steps that seem to be required to make their platforms safer for young people? I don't think it's necessarily an issue of trust. I think it's an issue of oversight, responsibility, accountability. Who do you want making sure that these platforms are safe. Do you want to leave that in the hands of the companies or do you want to have stronger regulation of them? After sitting through that hearing, you absolutely would go for the latter, trust me. You definitely would want oversight of these platforms. And one of the proposed mechanisms for that oversight is a draft online safety bill that's currently working its way through the parliament. Tell me about that bill. What does it propose to do? The online safety bill introduces a duty of care on tech firms to effectively protect users from harmful content and the impact of harmful systems, like the, the algorithms that pushed content towards Molly. One of those specific duties of care is towards children, and they have to perform what's known as a professional risk assessment to flag to Ofcom the potential harms that their platforms can cause, and Ofcom will make sure that they do as they say they will. If you breach the act, you can be fined either £18 million or 10% of global turnover, which in the case of Meta is a company that made more than £100 billion in turnover last year. Politicians, including the Prime Minister Liz Truss, have talked about the tension that exists when it comes to regulating the internet between trying to protect young people and and curate what they see and 
in maintaining some degree of freedom of speech, in keeping the internet a place where you can discuss things freely, where the government doesn't have too strong a role in limiting what you see. How do you see that issue and how it can be worked around when trying to make the internet safer? I think personally, you can easily balance those concerns with just making the platform safe. And I don't think that's difficult at all. I talked to quite a few campaigners about it and one of the most prominent ones, Biban Kidron, who is behind the Children's Code, which is another piece of regulation that protects children's data and stops it being misused. She says, this isn't a question of freedom of expression. This is simply a question of product safety. You know, like any other industry, you know, if you're making widgets or airplanes, a product must be safe for the people who engage with it. Personally, I think you can balance that with any concerns you might have over freedom of expression. And what have those platforms said since the coroner delivered his conclusions two weeks ago? Meta, the owner of Instagram and Pinterest, both issued statements after the hearing saying that their thoughts were with the Russell family, that they're committed to safety and improving the safety on their platforms and that they will consider the coroner's full report. And certainly their hands are going to be pretty full with the online safety bill. It's a tough piece of legislation that requires a lot of action from them, I think, particularly in terms of carrying out these risk assessments. If the act goes ahead in the form it's in, it's going to be quite tough for these companies to to keep to it. Ian, so much control in this area appears to be in the hands of the tech companies that run these platforms. But what do you think a parent can do to help their kids navigate these products more safely? If you push too hard, I think your child will find a way to hide something from you. That's quite a normal reaction for a, for a child. What a parent can do is to walk that tightrope and to keep an avenue of dialogue open as much as possible. Talk about what you find online. Encourage your child to talk about their experiences and be honest about that. Don't be judgmental about it. A lot of the content's great online, but the online world is full of dangers. And if you ever think you've come close to experiencing those dangers, you need to tell someone about it. Someone who can help you navigate that digital world and help lead you back to safety. The inquest for the death of one's child, it's tragic in any circumstances, but in this case, it's so charged with the the advocacy that you've been doing as well. And so I was just, I was wondering if you could describe for me what the experience of that inquest was like for you. I think the inquest itself was painful. It brought back lots of grief and and, um, we were confronted with the hideous content that Molly had been exposed to. But we were aware of that beforehand. I don't think we dared to think what the coroner might conclude. He's an independent person who makes his own mind up. But when the coroner gave his conclusions and they were so aligned with what we'd thought as a family, there was a sense, perhaps a sense of relief that it wasn't just us that were thinking the things we were thinking, as he's known, the learned coroner also thought that the inquest is maybe the end of a chapter it's been it's been there in the back of our minds for five years but there'll never be closure and we'll never stop missing molly and if we need to we'll never stop speaking and saying that the online world needs to be safer 
and that as a society we need not to stigmatize suicide and we mustn't stigmatize mental health issues and then these tragedies will hopefully be less frequent ian thank you so much well thank you thank you very much indeed That was Ian Russell, Molly Russell's father and a campaigner for online child safety. We really appreciate him talking to us. And thanks also to Dan Milmo, The Guardian's global technology editor. In the UK, the youth suicide charity Papyrus can be contacted on 0800 068 4141 or by email on PAT, that's pat, at papyrus-uk.org, or just search Papyrus UK. In the UK and Ireland, Samaritans can be contacted for free on the phone number 116123 or on the email joe, that's j-o, at samaritans.org. Other international helplines can be found at befrienders.org. And that is it for today. This episode was produced by Ned Carter-Miles and Natalie Ktina. Sound design was by Axel Kakutier. The executive producers were Elizabeth Casson and Homer Kalili. We're back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. 